Welcome to the Generous Business Owner Podcast, where business owners gain inspiration and encouragement to live a legacy, not just leave one. And now your hosts, Jeff Thomas, Alan Barnhart, and Jeff Rutt. Uh, Well, welcome, everybody, to this week's Generous Business Owner Podcast. This is your host, Jeff Thomas, and uh, we've got a very special guest with us today. It's Rob Follows. Rob is the founder and chairman of STS Capital. I know you may not know what that is now, but you will by the end of the podcast. Rob, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's an honor and a privilege to be here and, and to share with your audience. Congratulations to all of you that have set this wonderful wonderful organization up and it's inspiring. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We are uh, thrilled to uh, be building this sort of community of generous business owners and uh, we're trying to do some things by putting them together and that sort of thing. We've got a website now where they can get on our mailing list and all that. So that's a good uh, tee up for a plug for the generousbusinessowner.com. Go there and uh, sign up for the newsletter. Rob, uh, we always try to start with just kind of some background. Tell us about where you grew up. I think people have a clue already, maybe from the few words of the accent, but uh, tell them where you grew up and what family life was like. Sure, sure. I was born in, in uh, Montreal uh, during the uh, what was called the FLQ crisis. My dad and many other people moved to Toronto and so was born in Canada, grew up in, uh, uh, in and around Toronto, Canada, um, and eventually moved to the U.S. when I was in my late 20s. And moved originally to St. Louis, Missouri, and then uh, and then Florida, and then moved on from there. And so my my number is a, still a St. Louis number because that's when the, the first uh, agreements came out with Bryce. <laughs> yeah, I forgot that, but we had talked before, and I'm a I'm a I'm a St. Louis kid too. So we'll we'll uh, uh, but I think the I was already in Houston when the numbers came out, so my my cell phone doesn't prove it, but I. I can remember the old home 314 number. So, right. Uh, exactly. All right. Well, okay. So, all right. Well, that's a lot of moving around. Now, we're talk, talk about uh, your family growing up. Uh, how many kids? What were the folks like? All that kind of stuff. Sure. Well, I don't have the normal story. Uh, my mom died when I was two. Uh, and and I then, uh, I then ended up, so I have a, a blessing of lots of uh, variety on my parenting side. So, my, my dad hung in there, but my, my mom died when I was two. My my second, my first stepmother, uh, basically, I had to leave when I was five because my dad married another person. So that was Jeanne. And then a few years later, about ten years later, um, she was replaced. And so I've had this is probably very unique on your podcast of uh, five stepmothers. Uh, and so uh, so they, uh, that would be uh, a record, I would think. <laughs> and it, it created a lot of adversity and a lot of strength. And so I'm very thankful for that. Well, I mean, you know, we were talking before hitting record about um, setbacks. Some of them are self-inflicted. Some of them are external. Some of them are, and w- when you're kids, and you know that that's not a hand. Obviously, you dealt yourself. But what do you think? I mean, you you mentioned a few things that it, it strengthened you, but I'm sure it maybe didn't feel like that at the time. How do you how do you process uh, how that maybe affects you uh, positively or negatively? Uh, now, well, I mean, uh, it was incredibly uh, adverse, really adverse set of circumstances. And uh, I mean, to be vivid, so it's clear we were whipped so much we didn't have to do gym at school. We thought that was cool because if you have whip marks on your legs or on your back or on your arms, they're like, you know, you don't, you're not taking uh, gym class. We'd sit out gym class thinking we were cool to give you an idea of 
of the, you know, of the level of, you know, of, of pain that we, uh, that my brother and I went through. But it, in ultimately, there's a choice there. You choose to be adversely, you know, have an adverse reaction to that. Or in my case, at, at 16 years old, I decided that there are more beautiful places in this world and I'm going to become part of one and started building that from my heart, my inner heart out, only letting uh, love and light in. And it was a full moon that night. And, and I committed to myself that I would only, I would only focus on positives and build out a positive life. So it really, it really, that, that uh, difficult upbringing really did, um, uh, me uh, uh, did a great blessing with God's help to focus on the positive and stay focused on the positive since then. And in fact, I later in life had to balance that a little bit because I was too positive mm. and bring in balance, you know. So that was the that was the impact on me. So I started very very early in life uh, building business as an entrepreneur to build up the independence that I uh, that I strive for. Were you doing that uh, as a teenager? What 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 was the first job yeah, or two? Yeah, when I was 12, we started a good friend, still friend, started BNF Seasonal Services, which was Burns and Follows Seasonal Services, which were was long cutting and pool cleaning. And we would uh, get contracts from clients that would give us $20 to cut their grass. And we would hire our friends for 50 cents an hour. And uh, I think we had 70 people at one point uh, cutting grass and doing trimming and weeding and pool, pool cleaning and to season pool cleaning. <laughs> And that was from 12 to 13 to 14. So we started Holy early. Yeah, 70 employees when you're 13, 14. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, you, you have everybody in town, man. You had the whole class working. Yeah. Well, we had our classes working. That's where we got the- Exactly. Was at school, yeah. And um, they were, they yeah, we learned some lessons, right? They would cut the grass very slowly at 50 cents an hour. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, getting paid by the hour. I love it. Yeah. So we, we changed it, we changed it to project based, but yeah. And then snow shoveling. Cause you know, from yeah. Canada in the winter, same thing. And, uh, we, but you know, that, so it was early start and, um, uh, and then, and then my, my father wanted me to get involved in the family business. And I said, it was very independent. I said, no, he family business, quote unquote, he started a packaging machinery business. I said, I want you to take that over. You're the oldest son. It's European supply. Europeans expect the oldest son to take the business over and don't embarrass me with that. First of all, I can't stand, you know, machinery. And secondly, I couldn't, I, I'm not an engineer. I couldn't figure out how to turn it on. My younger brother was, you know, would, had been working in the plant. Said, you know, Christopher is the one. So he cut me off. He said, you are now, um, you owe me $20,000 at 18% interest. He made a bill, wrote it all hand out, rate a bill up. And you're going to start paying interest monthly now. And you better go get a job because I'm throwing out of the family financially. That was another blessing wow. because- he created a he created a uh, an entrepreneur because I was determined to pay that bill off uh, and to pay for my own university and not you know he said you'll come crawling back and I I uh, I said well that'll be the last thing I'll do <laughs> yeah and so uh, I I started a business when I was in university it grew to be the largest independent marketing services business in Canada and ten years later um, when free trade came along I was advised you better. You're not going to be protected under the the U.S., Canada, Mexico free trade agreement. So you better, you better, you'd better go talk to some of the big boys uh, in your industry because they're holding all their own inventory. They'll crush your business model. That was great advice. And so I hired a friend of my dad's because I wasn't old enough to be taken seriously at these meetings. 
and uh, and he was Tom was his name, and we went to visit the the three multi billion dollar groups in the U.S. And they said um, they were competing with each other because I didn't realize, but the big issue was General Motors. They were the biggest spender on marketing back then, and and General Motors had a thousand dealerships in Canada who weren't being serviced. And the person that had the control of them wanted to buy us because they would block the other one. The other one wanted to pay whatever they had to, to buy us. And I didn't understand this. And so as the seller, I didn't understand these motives behind the scenes of these buyers. And all I knew is the price was going up. And I ended up selling the business for 27 times EBITDA uh, to Merritt Inc. out of St. Louis, Missouri, to uh, a philanthropist. He was a wonderful philanthropist called Bill Merritt and 50 wealthiest guy in the U.S. at the time. And his motive was to block Carlson marking out of Minneapolis from getting our technology, uh, getting their technology through us. And so NetNet was able to sell my business for 27 times EBITDA when I was 29 years old, which created, you know, financial independence and the ability to really focus on, you know, making the world a better place. And, and also, um, well, starting a charitable foundation, which is what I was very keen to do. It's called UltraVest and is now um, 25 years old. And, it's contr- and and I could talk more about that, but that's my path. That was my well, path. Okay. Now that was a lot. There was a lot going on there. All right. So, yeah. So, okay. You go off to college. Uh, you, you start this business. The original intent is just to support yourself, get yourself through. And yeah. Pay for school. Yes, sir. Sounds like yeah. this crazy note that I don't know, dad made up. I, I, that, that whole thing is nuts. Uh, that's a whole other hour, I have a feeling. And then, uh, so, so obviously that, that, that takes off. Now you get out, uh, play, you know, let's rewind the tape a little bit. You start this marketing, did you move, uh, did you start the marketing company right away? What were the sort of steps before you started? Oh, oh, well, oh, well, I was, I didn't want to stay in Ontario when summer came. I needed to make $20,000 to pay for school. And, and they used to say, go West young man, uh, back in those days, it was in the early eighties and. And um, there were tree planting jobs, which were the worst, but you could definitely earn your $20,000 planting trees in British Columbia. But before that was Banff, Alberta, and it was a booming tourist area. It's still very beautiful. It's in a national park. Um, And so I got there, but the ski season was still on. And I'm a big skier. I love skiing. And so I thought, well, I'm going to have to wait for the jobs to start. So I got an end of year ski pass and I skied every day. And I, I was skiing with all the owners of the businesses. They're who's out, not the laborers, exactly. right? Skiing during the day. And I got to know all the owners of the businesses. And then there was finally a job posting. They called me and said, Rob, go get the job. It's to sell wholesale produce to us. And we all know you and we'd love it to be a local. You're a local now. You've skied with us for a month. And I said, okay. <laughs> so I got the job and it was it was a, a Sun Harvest produce, I remember. And I got 55% of that market within the next um, six weeks or eight weeks or so. So I learned a big lesson here. I sold so much produce that the supplier went bankrupt trying to supply it. He was buying it from his competitors. And they called me into their 5.30 a.m. You know, meeting, coffee meeting, all the guys that, that run the restaurants in, the, in Banff. They get together very, very early in the morning. And uh, they said, Rob, we don't think you're going to get paid. And you think you're going back to school. We want to support you. So we brought you the check that we owe. Wow. And, they, and they said, look, we're going to teach you how to negotiate. I was very young, you know, it wasn't even 20. And so they're, and they were saying, you have to certify these checks and, and then you'll get, you'll get paid because they're, they're as good as cash. And so I had hundreds of thousands of dollars, about 200 and change, not quite 300,000. And I, and when they came to town, I said, you know, you owe me the 20, $25,000. He said, oh, I can't pay you. I'm bankrupt. I said, well, 
I have $300,000 in cash here. And if we go to the bank and we deposit this in your account, you pay me the 25. And so that's how I got the first summer, the money to pay for my school. And then the CFO called me and this is how the career in, in marketing started. And she said, that was brilliant what you did in BAM. And so we want to hire you. I'm like, you hire me? You just bankrupted a company. She said, it wasn't me. Please trust me. These are very high integrity people. Come and work with us in marketing and represent our advertising agency in Banff and Lake Louise and in Canmore, it was just getting going. So I did that. And then when I when school started, I didn't want to not be able to go to law school, which is what I, my plan was. So I, I went back to Toronto and opened a branch of the ad agency called uh, GW Morley. And eventually the suppliers called me and said, you're doing more volume out of Toronto than you are doing out of Calgary. And we will give you credit, but not in the name of the person that will pay us in Calgary. You must split off and we will give you each a million dollars of credit. And so I said, okay. So I called Bill Morley and I said, Bill, we need to talk. He said, I know they've told me I need to let you split off. I said, well, how much does it cost to buy the business? He said, I don't know, Rob, let's have a pool game for it. <laughs> oh my God. And I said, in, on my pool table in my basement, he said, well, I guess, sure. You know, and so I, of course, won the pool game and um, it was on my table and I wasn't that good, but I wasn't going to lose that game. And so I started, we called it AIM because I wanted to be in the A's, you know, um, AIM, Active Impressions and Marketing. It grew to be the largest when I was in law school and in school, I just stayed in school and kept working. I took a few years off and it built up to be the largest independent marketing services agency in Canada. And that's what I was able to sell for 27 times EBITDA when Free Trade came along to Maritank out of St. Louis. But the lesson I'll just say is that later I became the buyer about three years later for other deals, talking about Italy, where you just were in Italy. And and I looked back, I said, where's my file? My file's not here. When I got my own file, it became clear they would have paid a hundred times EBITDA for my business. I left 75% of the money on the table. And that's the that's what that's one of the reasons I started STS Capital Partners to help entrepreneurs and families get the real value of their business from the buyer's perspective so that they can then give the upside to charity and make the world a better place. That's what I'm sure we'll get to with success. Yeah, significant yeah, I think, yeah that's definitely where, where this is all leading. So, but that's an amazing story. So why, okay, so a kid who's already crushing it, you kind of got this marketing thing going. I mean, it sounds like you almost got it going in college, you know, like yep. you get out, you want to go to law school. How There's not that many entrepreneurs that I go, I dream of going to law school. What was <laughs> it that drove you to go to law school? This sort Wow. Of that's, uh, that's a great question. Nobody's ever asked because my father built businesses up for 30 years yeah. and then, and then some lawyers played some tricks uh, from his perspective on him and he ended up. Be, with a bank guarantee on a business that he'd sold that he that didn't pay him the earnout. Now I know what that is, right? I didn't know as a kid what that was. And were able to get him to pay for their debts because he didn't have proper legal advice and he remained the guarantor on the bank account. So they drained the bank account, pulled on his on his guarantee. It was very complex the way they did it, but it was very effective. And and it was very white collar and stuff. I was like, oh my gosh, that's going to that happen to me. No. Right. No. And nobody close to me will ever have anything like happen to them. So when I went to law school, I remember I got 100% on the first exam because it was contracts. And I wanted to understand so clearly what yeah. all the, the theory was behind contracts. 
And that got me through law school because I ended up trading my contract summary because I'd done a summary with all the others like in Paper Chase, you know, trade the summaries. And in trading the summaries, sorry about that, in trading the summaries, you end up being able to get through law school. Huh. Wait, what does that mean? I don't know what trading the summaries means. In law school, you when you, you do, do a summary of, yeah. of, a, of a course, right? Yeah. I did the summary on contracts because I had the highest mark in contracts. Okay. I had done my summary. They knew mine was good because I right. had a high mark. What right. you do is a summary of each of the books you read. You read all these books. Oh, you trade them. Summarize them. Yeah. Okay. So you don't have to read a thousand books. You sort of trade each other's things. Okay. Only the dumb guys read a thousand books. <laughs> what, were, what were those things when we were kids that were always the summaries of the books, the little yellow things? Anyway, somebody oh, else. Cole's note. Cole's note. You, yeah, exactly. There were always a, different versions of those. But uh, all right. So, yeah. but you did this. So you're running this business. You get through law school. I mean, that's amazing yeah. to me. Uh, this sort of shows. All right. So I'm starting to get the picture put together. Tell me where I'm off here. Okay. Tough upbringing. That's that's the the uh, uh, understatement of the day. Uh, creates this this Rob. One of, one of the uh, phrases that a that a friend of mine said, and it just like stuck out ten years to me was the gift of the struggle. Uh, and uh, obviously, you wouldn't uh, uh, necessarily pick all those things to happen. Like just all struggles that happen in our life, we we wouldn't select them, but they make us. Uh, they, they teach us lessons. And uh, so you have that. So you have this, man, you definitely have this uh, uh, hustle thing going. And then uh, you're doing law school, which to me is amazing. Uh, clearly, God gave you some, the ability to work really hard and, and uh, study and all those kind of things. Uh, it, and you have this sort of protection thing about you. This, this, is, this is fascinating to me. Okay. So you sell this business. You're like, I left money on the table, even though it was a crazy multiple, uh, probably from a small number, but, but I mean, it, okay. You're like, man, I could have done that better. Uh, I learned this legal stuff. And then you start this essentially investment bank, right? Yeah. Sell side. Yeah. Sell side. Yep. Uh, mm -hmm. So talk about that. I mean, to me, that actually starts to make sense. Like, okay, you have an exit. Maybe it wasn't perfect. Did, did you have re representation in that exit, by the way? Not proper. Not Well, I there did, but go. not proper. Not proper. Okay, so this makes sense, right? So you sort of find out later, oh, I wish I had known these things. You've got this legal background, which is super helpful, I would think, actually. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. And, and still is. So, okay, so how's that go? All right. Well, it was, it was the 10 years at Merit that really, where I, where I led a billion dollars. Oh, did you business. stay when they bought you? You stayed for 10? Wow. All of their international, most of their international, uh, which was a billion dollars worth of business. I did the turnaround, did the combination of lines of business in Canada first. Um, after you know, being I was a vice president of marketing or something, and the president of my division, we ended up realizing as we combined them, they were losing four dollars for every dollar they brought in, and the and the politics was crazy. So I just I got back then. I didn't I didn't know how to set up you know on my computer to we didn't do that back then. I used a full scap pad of paper. I wrote all the issues down the left hand side. And all the solutions that had to occur on the right-hand side, I flew to St. Louis, I handed it to Bill and said, look, I'm not the guy because they hate me because I've got a big check in the bank, but you need to hire somebody that can follow this script and send me somewhere, somewhere where, you know, like California, I'll go work in California and learn to surf and handle your bank, your automotive accounts there because I've got to stay for three years, I'll work someone else. And so they looked at the analysis and they said, 
I think you better get back on that plane to Toronto because you're now the president of uh, Merits in Canada. I said, no, 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 no. I've got enough enemies already. And they said, no, no, that's not, that's not an option. That's what you're going to do. And I'm like, and they were paying me a lot of money. And so yeah. I said, well, and I had a hurried journey. I said, okay. So I went back and, I, and they said, well, you can consult with us on every decision you make. But it was a massive turnaround. I, I didn't realize what I was undertaking. We had two out of 10 customers sat from IBM and Ford and all these big clients. We had two out of 10 employees sat. No, everybody was miserable. We were losing a net of $3 on every dollar that went out the door. I mean, they came in the door. It was a disaster. And I had a lot of energy. I was in my late 20s. And so, and I wanted my friends to do well and my clients to do well. So I got my shoulder behind the wheel and turned that, that around into the highest performing merits unit globally. And then I realized we were the tail, not the dog. So I went, I moved to St. Louis without any permission and said, look, I went to see all the market leaders for all the different markets and said, look, you've all got divisions in Canada. Let me just implement the programs. And that's how we rocketed that business. And it became one of the best places to work, top 50 places to work in Canada and the high, and some of the highest, you know, highest growing and the top performing merits division. So, but there were other problems at merits. When I moved to, to St. Louis, they didn't care about the international divisions. It was so big in St. Louis. Yeah. Merits is down on 44. Um, and, and so I, I was, so I flew to England and said, you know, how do we manage this? You know, you're the headquarters of Europe where they're going to make deals with, you know, the Chrysler purchasing guys in Detroit and we're going to have to live with it. And we better figure out the pricing in Australia, the pricing in England, you know, we got to figure this out. And so I was trying to figure it all out. And that's how I ended up as head of the global operations because the broad contracts were now sweeping across the world with the automotive companies and the banks with this new purchasing, you know, agenda you might remember. And so it was fascinating to be in this multi-billion dollar group at a very senior level. And Bill was a philanthropist. So I said to Bill, if you can help me build my charity up with your, all your PhDs. And he said, Rob, you can have any resources you want. As long as you perform on the business side, I'll give you whatever you want to support your foundation. And so it became a, a unifying value that Bill and I had as the owner of that very, very large business um, in philanthropy. Um, that, that is why I stayed because I sold the business to start the charity which was a life planning thing, which I could tell you about, but Bill got right behind it. And, and so I stayed. And so to answer your first question, the learning in running a billion dollar yeah. business and part, part of a $3 billion business that was global is where the learn and buying and selling businesses inside that and uh -huh. realize we had a view the seller didn't see, just like they had a view of mine uh, that I didn't see well, when I sold for 27, could have sold for a hundred times. And so later, when I end up just so you get the headline on this, when I was later chosen to do um, a leadership course at Oxford um, with many global leaders in the business school for a summer, I came out of that and they offered me a PhD slot. And I said, I didn't apply. They said, no, no, we're offering, it's an experiment. We're offering two business leaders a slot in the PhD program. And I said, well, I don't want to do this on, I'll do it on my charity. I'm not doing it on the business. They said, no, that's what we want. We want you to contribute the ultra best thinking to the world because you're in the business school and you're talking about philanthropy. This is so unique. We want you to do a PhD in the business school on your charity. And I wanted to know how, you know, how that concept could scale, how CEOs make their decisions in philanthropic giving. That was what my PhD was on and on corporate philanthropy. And, and so when that program, when the, when the professor in that program said, we're not going to continue that here to put it politely, which I described to you earlier, because it's really a U.S 
focus. I then started thinking, what am I going to do next? And that's where STS was born. It was born from three things. Wanting to create more philanthropic capital because we're very lucky to be born where we are. And I believe that is a value that runs through all of my DNA. And so I noticed that entrepreneurs and families that sell, that sell their businesses for many times what they thought now start to think about philanthropy. I can't take it with me when I die if I sold for 800 million or a billion or even many people, 100 million, they're not going to take with them. You know, They're not going to spend before they go and they're not going to take it with them, obviously. And so that spawns a lot of thinking on legacy and on philanthropy. That's the first reason I started. And the second reason is I've got a dharma of connecting people to help their dreams come true. That's just natural dharma I learned over my life planning processes. And the third was because the I left that money on the table. I left 75%. I knew if I combined those things, if we could get people the true value of their business and help them sell, then then we could bring success to significance together with selling to strategics, create more philanthropic capital, create billions of dollars new philanthropic capital, and help make the world a better place that way. So that's how it all came together. Oh my gosh. There is so much in there. We might need, we need five episodes to cover this whole thing. <laughs> But all right, now let, let me uh, let me quietly pray and sort through all of that. But I mean, okay, so now it sort of makes sense. Okay, so let me back up. So you stay at Marath, and, and now you do this for a living, and you have for twenty years helping other people sell businesses. I mean, let's be honest, not that many people want to hang around beyond the earnout, beyond the two three year contract kind of deal. I was sort of thinking to myself, you're telling that story. Why'd you stay? You know, like ten years. At, but it seemed like it was that you were learning a lot, but it was also seems like the alignment with the Merritt's family, with the with their philanthropy uh, thing. Is that is that fair? Well, the true answer is deeper than that. Can yeah. I give you the true answer? So when um, I married my high school sweetheart, and she turned out when I came out of law school not to be a sweetheart, <laughs> and I won't get vivid about that. It's yeah. just a lack of integrity. So I then, you know, I can't live without integrity. We ended up, you know, going our own ways, but we'd made enough money at that point that she never had to work again. And so I thought, well, what am I doing? What am I doing with my life, really? And so because I had not come into the office the whole time I was in law school, they said, stay away, Rob, from the office. And I said, well, okay, you don't have to tell me that twice. I'm 40 pounds overweight. I've, you know, all I've done is work. I, I, I'm going to start getting fed and thinking about other things. So I started doing a lot of, of personal reflection on really what is the purpose of life here? And, and, and I was tapped to do a process. And the process is to project yourself to your deathbed, yeah. to, lie, to be on your deathbed in transition for, for three hours a day for, as long, for at least a month. And so I started doing that. I did it for two months, three hours a day. You have to do something, go canoeing, go swimming, do something, keep your mind you know, from drifting and stay focused on what what you lying on your deathbed um, are going to look back and see in your life. What do you want to see? And so when I came out of that process, I was blessed with one page of notes. It's very humbling, just one page. And, and I realized through those that the making more money wasn't something that was part of my end of life. You know, And if I was going to be true to myself and true to the, the goals I'd set, I didn't need to keep running the marketing agency because that was all about um, making more money. And, and there was five or six very large objectives in my life. One of them was to create a charitable foundation to help make the world a better place and break cycles of poverty for many generations to come. You can see I've memorized that. That's very, you know, it goes back a long, long way. And there were many others, all of which could be supported by 
different things that I would do, but not by staying where I was, not by, you know, living in a big house and owning a business and doing all the stuff that, you know, is defined as success. So I, I, you know, prayed for the strength and got the strength. Uh, and I'll be very thankful. I'm very thankful for that. Sold everything I owned. Sold everything I owned when I was 27, 28 years old and, and started to really look at what is the real purpose of life. I went to visit with many, 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 many learned people about that. I went to many, many, many monasteries. I spent, I spent a lot of time looking at what is the purpose of life? What is our purpose here in life? And it's certainly not to own stuff. And so, and Bill Merritt supported that. And I went to spend time to learn to meditate uh, in Nepal. I spent, and, and one of my goals was to see the whole world because I didn't understand the world. And so Merritt's having a billion dollar travel division really supported that. And um, to learn the wisdom to help make the world a better place. That was one of my goals, my end of life goals. And so that's why I stayed at Merritt's because I could reduce, Bill challenged me. Say, can you be the top performer here and reduce the amount of time you spend working to 20% of your time? And, and leave 80% of your time for doing good in this world and, and helping people in this world. And if you can do that, then you're the man I think you are. If you can't, then maybe you should, you know, quit your job. <laughs> yeah. And so he was a real inspiration. And wow. so he was my mentor for many years. And, uh, and he spent 90% of his time on philanthropy. Wow. And he was the 50 wealthy, 50th wealthiest guy in the U.S. before the tech so What group. was the catalyst for you to finally leave Merit? Sitting, um, well, Bill died, um, and we had a lot of celebrations. Um, his children continued the legacy of, of a family fight, and it was time for me to set the final chapter of my life up. And so I spent years, at least two years, planning. I would bring my journal to meetings where other people have their journals, you know, they're making notes in the meetings. And I would make a few notes on the meetings, but I would make notes on what I was reflecting on that I wanted to do in my next chapter that I loved, that inspired me, that that I didn't want to do, that I wanted to stay away from. And I planned to launch um, STS Capital Partners ultimately that supported those three objectives. To, and now I'm on the next chapter, which I'll, I'll talk about if you're interested. But but um, it was and is about creating billions of dollars of new philanthropic capital, helping people on their own path from success to significance through selling to strategics. And so focusing on helping entrepreneurs and families sell their business to strategic buyers, not to financial buyers who will pay that hundred times and having, or whatever it is, and having them understand truly what the real value of their business is to strategic buyers and hopefully blessing them with millions, if not billions of dollars of, of capital that they can make philanthropic or they can, you know, reinvest and build out a legacy with. And so, that's what FPS does. So for, for, uh, those keeping score at home, STS Capital Kind of a, a double meaning, right? Could could mean success to significance, could mean selling to strategic, could mean both, right? Is that fair? Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. And and so when uh, it, it, we were just doing some training uh, literally yesterday at uh, at Arcos about investment banking one hundred and one, and uh, we were talking about the difference between financial and strategic buyers. Uh, not everybody maybe maybe knows that difference. Strategics who are already in that business uh, tend to pay a higher price. Is that right? Than financial buyers? Absolutely. They pay a higher price and better terms and conditions for a lot of reasons I can explain to you on a second. Yeah, that's podcast. a whole other hour. 
But is there is there another benefit where sometimes the strategic buyer also, um, you know, is, is there a chance that the culture might stay intact? I mean, how do you think about somebody well, selling and, and worried about their people? So we, we agreed to sell somebody's firm today. They want $130 million for it and it has to be the right buyer. And so the way we work um, on that is is laying out required outcomes. What are the absolutely required outcomes? We'd encourage anybody to do that. Think about selling a business in money, in terms and conditions, in the name of the business, and how long you're going right. to stay, whatever that is, including culture, and and then and then preferred outcomes. And so you've got required outcomes and preferred outcomes. And then decide, first of all, will selling the business achieve all of these? Because maybe that's not the case. And but if it if it can and it and it would under certain conditions, then you want to find a representative to help you sell the business that is not conflicted, that will absolutely maximize value for you and is not more interested in the buyers in the buyers than they are the sellers. And that's very rare. It's only, I would say, in about two percent of the representatives out there in the marketplace are truly interested in supporting the sellers as opposed to themselves and often, you know, honoring the buyer's interest more than the than the sellers. Unfortunately. So that's our commitment. And that's how we, you know, we support our our values and being there um to create value for for sellers. Um and so absolutely strategic buyers will pay more, especially if they if they are approached the right way. You don't approach the corporate development team, you approach the the business operations teams and you get them to understand that sharing with you what they're gonna do with that business will be safer for them. So there's no fear of failure. And in doing so, they show you how much they're going to make owning the business. And that's what you negotiate against. That's how you get to very, very high multiple. We've done deals for 56 times EBITDA, 60 times EBITDA. You know, we've done very, very out, out, you know, today. Yesterday, we just learned from somebody we were going to sell for 60 million. The max they hoped for was 80. We got them 132 million. And that'll be closing early next month. They're thrilled and they're philanthropists that will make a difference. Somebody I can introduce you to that should be on this podcast. Love it. Uh, well, we'll do that. They, okay. And I just have this sense. We're supposed to talk about what you're doing now. Um, <laughs> you, you, wow. you, you are Bill Merritt's now. Okay. Uh, so there is somebody listening to this, uh, wow. is the old 29 year old Rob. Okay. Yeah. And they're like, uh, you know, maybe they just, uh, left a company or they got something going and uh, it's growing and they're like, man, I wish I had a Bill Merritt. And uh, hey, here we are recording this conversation yeah. today, and they have a chance to hear you yeah. talk into their lives a little bit. Tell, tell us where you are yeah. today. What, what is filling your mind and uh, you know, how do you think about fulfilling your purpose at this age and stage? Well, that's a whole other podcast. <laughs> okay. Um, but I would say to your question on talking to someone that's uh, where I was when I was 29, um, to um, first of all, recognize that, that we are very, very, I'm sure that many people do, but to recognize that we are in this Western world born into a very, very fortunate set of circumstances. And we have the resources, the time, treasure, and talent to really make this world a better place. And many of us as business leaders don't think about the capacity in our businesses, the knowledge we have, the the relationships we have, and and, and those can be hugely leveraged um, in in philanthropy and in in impact investing and in making the world a better place. And so, understanding, listening to your heart, and understanding what it is that really inspires you, 
philanthropically or impact investing wise, and then really exploring that and really spending time there and opening that up so that you can become an advocate for that and leverage all of your learning and relationships in, in the business world is something that I would, I would highly encourage and I would be happy to spend time with somebody that wants to do that. The second thing I would say is many of us play small. Um, and there is, we will, and, and you, you, I would ask everyone to recognize this, that there's, there's, you know, in my case, there's the little Rob and there's big Rob. And in everybody's case, there's a smaller version of ourselves that we were taught, that we were brought up with. That's our, our young child and our emotional selves. And there's the big spiritually led thinkers that see abundance and understand. Well, I, like ourselves. I like the acknowledgement of both. Yes. And yes. And. And my recommendation to those that might be interested um, is to is to really try to listen for and watch when you're playing big and when you're playing small and when you're playing win and when you're playing to win and when you're playing not to lose and go for it. Be your big self. Believe in the dreams that you can that you can envision that you're inspired to envision and don't let anybody tell you you can't. And anybody that tells you you can't is not worth listening to. It's time for you to step up and be your biggest self and make this world a better place in the best way that you possibly can. That's what I would say. Oh, that's a, that is a mic drop uh, right there. You're preaching to me today. So uh, I'm, I'm receiving it. And, uh, you know, when things get complex and sometimes you just want to shrink back, it'd be easier, but it's not the thing you know you're called to. And I like that, that your small self is like the fearful, you know, human side and the big self from what i heard is the you know god made you to do amazing yeah. things listen to him not to frankly the enemy who's telling you to be small right exactly exactly so oh, if, if if you'd like i'd be happy to share with you personally um where i am now but i i don't think i do that with the recording on you can tell that's me all right well i mean we're, we're out of time for today so we'll We'll wrap it there. We always we always ask for a, a practical tip at the end, but I kind of framed it uh, that way already. So I think you already nailed it. So I'll just wrap it there by thanking you, Rob, for taking the time to speak on the uh, Generous Business Owner podcast today. Thanks so much. Happy to help anyone I can. All right. Thank Let's you, guys. All of your good work. All right. Well. And thanks, everybody, for listening to this week's Generous Business Owner podcast. As I said, go to the website, all the social channels, uh, sign up for the newsletter, share it with a friend, and uh, we'll see you next week. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Generous Business Owner podcast with Jeff Thomas, Alan Barnhart, and Jeff Rutt. Make sure to follow the podcast so you don't miss an episode. You can find the guest contact information in the show notes. Stay tuned for the next episode.